Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Obedient, we are looking at why being rooted in Christ brings about the blessing of fruitful living. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. So we're in week 11 of our series, Obedient, uh, but we're going to be starting week one of our look through the letter of Paul to Titus which I promise you at some point I will call Timothy at some point because I have a preference for Timothy, my namesake. I always imagine that Paul wrote his letters to Timothy to me because I have problems. (laughs) But anyway, we're going to be jumping out of Timothy and into Titus this morning. And uh, I wanted to set set the stage for what's going on in this first chapter of Titus. And to do that, I want to take us back to the beginning, not way back in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, God created it, not that beginning, the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. And I want to read what Acts chapter 2 says, beginning at verse 1 to you. It says this, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing wind of a violent Wind, the blowing of a blowing wind of a violent wind. That doesn't make any sense. Sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they had heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Now, what happens after this is Peter steps up to the mic. There wasn't a mic. I imagine there was. He steps up to the mic, and he corrects them because he says, hey, guys, it's only 9 in the morning, so none of us have been drinking. But what you're experiencing is from the power of God. And he goes on to deliver the gospel message to them. He elevates Jesus as Lord and Savior He reckons with them that Jesus was crucified in part of their own doing, but that God raised him on the third day. And what we find at the end of Peter's message is that all that were listening were cut to the heart. And they said, brother, what should we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the cool part about this passage is that at the end of all of this commotion and excitement, it says that 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Now, here's why we need to grasp 
the early foundations of the church for our text today. When we look through that list of folks that were there to hear Peter's message, we find that some of the people were from this place, this island called Crete. And that is the place where Titus is and where Paul has called him to continue to minister and to lead. And I have to imagine that some of that great number who came to faith on that day were Cretans. And the reason this is important is because oftentimes when we look at Paul's letters, we want to draw out a map and look at all of his missionary journeys and figure out exactly when in Acts Paul was at Crete and then try to put a timetable on it because we've just got to have the linear progression of everything for some reason. Except that in the book of Acts, guess what we don't get? We don't get that detail. But if we're looking for that detail, we're missing the awe-inspiring nature of this story. Because it didn't start with Paul for these people. It started when the church started, way back in the beginning, when that number of 3,000 were brought to the faith. That is when the faith began for the Cretan people. And you have to imagine that these people, once they all went home after Pentecost, they went home and they began to share their faith and attempt to live their faith out. And that's what sets up our story here in Titus. So we're going to look at chapter 1 today, and we're going to find out what Paul has to say to Titus and what he calls him to do. And so I want you to follow along on the screen here with me as we look at Titus chapter 1. Paul begins, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, and our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason, Titus, I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what, has, what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages, the, manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Instead, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Paul might not have survived in our current culture. Anyway, that's, this saying is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, here's what's amazing about this passage. So, if you look into this place called Crete, you'll find that the place is diverse economically, socially, religiously, politically, across the board. There's all sorts of thoughts and ideas and life habits mixed into this culture. There's actually a pretty vast uh, concentration of Jewish folks. And as you know, if you've ever read through Paul's letters, one of his struggles is, is as a Pharisee and a believer in Jesus, he's constantly being combative with fellow Jewish folks that are requiring others to submit to Jewish laws and customs in order to become a faithful Christian person. And yet, he has this idea that it is by Jesus alone that one comes to faith and nothing else. And so he's dealing with that, but he's also in this kind of two-stage war, so to speak, dealing with the culture at large with this people group that are into all sorts of gods and goddesses and all of the different beliefs and lifestyles that go along with those particular religious leanings. And so Titus is in this place where it's probably really challenging to get a foothold on propelling people toward faith. And yet, Paul has tasked Titus to do just that. And so, what he does in this letter to start out is he tells Titus to appoint elders, leaders in the church. And there were probably many churches scattered, and so he's probably asking him to appoint multiple elders in multiple churches. And he tells him how to identify these individuals. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us that Paul would do this. If you look way back in Deuteronomy, Paul, being a good Pharisee, would have been well aware of how to establish leadership for a people group. Because that's what Moses does. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, this is what it says. It says, At that time I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. Moses is feeling the pressure. The Lord, your God, has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? He's getting cantankerous here. Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. Paul here and Titus through Timothy, or see, <laughs> through Titus is trying to establish the same thing at Crete, asking him to appoint leaders over the churches. And he, he, he gives these, these leaders some requirements or guidelines. That's how we like to read this. 
as kind of like a checklist of do's and don'ts, a job description, so to speak. And so what's interesting in this passage is not just what Paul says that the elders of Crete should look like, but what he does not require. In fact, I was reading through a commentary this week, and a lady named Ada Spencer actually wrote something that was intriguing. I want to share what she wrote here. She says, Paul did not require that the elders be Jewish or circumcised, as the circumcision party might have required. Paul did not require that the elders be aristocrats, as the Minoans might have required. This is a people group that was at Crete. Paul did not require that the elders be free citizens, as the Romans or Greeks required. Paul did not require that the elders be wealthy men of leisure, as the rabbis required. There is no mention of ethnic or class or political or economic status. See, in this culture, everyone that had something to say about the way things should go might have expected Paul, a good leader, to have established the church leadership based off of these high-status expectations. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives Titus the list that he does. And the list is made up of a mishmash of character qualities. And here's the thing. The reason that Paul would do that is because status and structure for most leaders in the day would have been something that you were born into or privileged into or something that you could wear as if you were something special and important. Even if underneath it all, you're not worthy of anyone following. But for Paul, he turns to Titus and he gives him this list of characteristics that end up being transparent and accountable. There are characteristics that can't be faked. If, if you are looking for a leader and you look at this list, it's not just a list that you can say, oh, well, my buddy knows this buddy who's in this special status and I'll pick them. No, you have to know the details of the person's life. They say they believe something. How does that manifest in their lives? Is their faith active? Do their actions back up their words? Do they practice what they preach? You can't fake that. There's also a semblance of structure that Paul's asking Titus to put in place here. For instance, he tells him literally that the elders should be a one-woman man. And he says that their kids should not be wild and disobedient, which, by the way, if you saw what Paul thinks about the Cretan people, you would understand why. He doesn't want an elder whose household is running wild just like the culture at large. But he's also wanting someone that you can look at their life and say, yes, that person is worthy of following after. And so that raises a question for us. How many people in the room are elders? Oh, really, we don't have any in the room right now. Man, I got to... Anyway... So here's the thing, if you're like me and you're not an elder, 
You could easily read this passage and say, well, I'm not an elder and I don't aspire to be one, so this doesn't really matter and we can all go home. But that would be missing something big. That would be missing something big. Because we shouldn't be saying, I don't aspire to be an elder or I'm not an elder, so therefore this doesn't matter. We should instead be saying to ourselves, if this is what an upstanding leader in the church looks like, then in my own faith, I should aspire to reach that high bar. I should be the type of person that if Paul or Titus or anybody in the modern church were to come and look at my life, they would say, that, that's it right there. That's the person. That's the person. Because someone looks at our lives and they know that we claim to love Jesus and the way that we live backs up what comes out of our mouths. And that's what Paul is ultimately setting up for Titus here. You see, the teachings of Jesus and his apostles were not just meant to be something that we hear and we can recite in a faith statement. They weren't just some law code to adhere to. They weren't just a list of do's and don'ts. What Jesus said and what Jesus did was meant to be life-altering for us. And therefore, we should aspire to have our life altered by him. And that's why, if you're a fill-in-the-blank type person, I've got this little phrase that I want you to remember. The fruit is the proof of the roots. In our lives, the fruit that we bear is the proof of the roots. That's why we've had this whole tree and roots display throughout this message series. Because whether a tree is bearing fruit or not bearing fruit, or whether it's bearing good or bad fruit, is an indicator of what's at the root of the life of the tree. And the same is true for us. In fact, Jesus in the Gospel of John says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me will bear fruit. And whoever doesn't will be cut off, and you don't want to be a doesn't person. But anyway... There's this idea that runs throughout the New Testament that to stay rooted in Jesus will lead to a life of bearing fruit. But that's a hard thing for us. That's hard for us because we live as people that like to think of life as a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's kind of the product of religiosity in the first place. In fact, I would argue that the one thing that makes Christianity stand out as unique in comparison to other religions is this particular issue. It's that many of us want a religious system. I mean, we, don't, we say we don't want it, but we kind of do. Where someone will tell us exactly what we should do with our lives and exactly not what to do. And then we can constantly be checking, okay, did I do this? Okay, I've got that down. Did I do that? Yeah, I've got that down. Oh, oh, I've avoided this. I must be a really good person. 
And in a lot of religious systems, and I don't mean to paint them with a broad brush because this would be overly simplistic, but in a lot of religious systems, that's exactly what religion is. You want to come close to God? Do these things, adhere to this. And what makes Christianity unique is that through Jesus, that is not the case. It is not you do this or don't do this and you'll get close to God. It's God will do this for you to make a way toward God. In fact, what we find about all the people, all of our heroes in the faith who are all really actually deep down royal screw-ups, just like us, deep down, the message of the New Testament is that if we try to live by this do and don't checklist, we will ultimately fail and falter. It is actually through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit that we are given the grace and the means by which to walk in step with the Spirit. That's some Paul imagery there. To walk in the Spirit so that we do what? We bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that's a real challenge for us. Because we have this tendency to not view God that way. To not view Jesus that way. I was actually telling a group of folks in a class that we were doing on Thursday night that we have a grace problem. We really struggle with the idea that God took care of it. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to read a passage like this and immediately start asking myself, well, did I get that one right or whatever? I mean, I, I told last service, like, I'm not a very hospitable person at all. Like, my wife Angie, I'll, I'll never forget, like, She's gotten on me about this before because, like, we'll have someone over and, like, I don't even offer them a glass of water. <laughs> Mainly because my mind just doesn't go there. I guess, like, if hospitality is, like, a spiritual gift, I don't have it. This is not in my DNA. Like, I just don't, I don't think about offering them water or tea or coffee. Like, and I know plenty of hospitable people in my life, and I'm very grateful for them, because I get to be the benefactor of some of the things that they give, you know. Oh, would you like a cup of tea? No, wait, that's, I drink coffee. That would be Didi. Um, no, uh, I, I, I love the hospitable people, but I just don't do it. And so I look at this passage, and Paul says, he must be hospitable. And I'm like, ooh, I missed the mark there. And if you look at any of Paul's lists, we all have a tendency to do that. We read it that way, and we immediately think, I don't measure up, and therefore I'm disqualified. I'm not just disqualified from this leadership thing, but I'm disqualified altogether. What could God want to do with me? In fact, talking about this grace problem, uh, we've, been, we, we've been leading this pilot group for, for a class that we're going to roll out next year. And I did a survey for the folks that piloted it. And the number one question that came up was in some form of, how can God possibly use me when I'm so imperfect? How could God possibly want anything to do with me because I'm so messed up? We got this question in some form or fashion or another over and over and over again in the survey. That's right, somebody you're sitting next to actually said that. So this isn't just a manufactured idea or struggle. It's one that we all have as a church family. 
But here's the beauty of the Christian faith and why this idea that the fruit is the proof of the roots is so freeing. Is this. The roots are not your willpower. The roots are not your strength. The roots are not your ability to get down and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and toe the line in life. The roots of the Christian faith have nothing to do with you and me. What the New Testament teaches is that the roots have to do with Jesus and his spirit, which is sent to dwell in us. And therefore, it's not that we muster up the strength at our roots to produce fruit ourselves. Instead, we lean on the Spirit. And when we lean on the Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit, good fruit is the natural product that will come out of our lives. And when that happens, people will see it including somebody like Titus, who's looking for leaders to oversee churches so that the church can flourish in a place where it's struggling to flourish. And that means that the message here about elders isn't something we just throw out because we say it doesn't apply to me. It's something that we should read and lean into and be overjoyed by. Because we recognize that God didn't leave us to our own devices to pick ourselves up and go live a life for him. But instead, he gave us his son and he sent his spirit to help us to live that life. Because the fruit is the proof of the roots. In fact, when Jesus teaches this idea of the vine and the branches, he even says that those that are producing fruit... He will prune those branches so that more and better fruit can be produced. Because he wants us to thrive. And not thrive in this like self-helpy kind of way that we hear all the time. I'm talking about thriving in the godly kind of way. That's his desire for us. Now, here's, here's the thing about, about this too. And it's this, it's this verse 16, and, and Paul comes at it from kind of the negative angle. But I think this is the key verse of this passage. He says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. See, anybody can claim to be a Christian person. In fact, if you look at the data in our country something upwards of 80%, I think it might have lowered to 75, but it's still a pretty big number, a percentage of people claim to be Christians. Anybody can make that claim. The question is, is when someone looks at my life or they look at your life, do they see Jesus or do they just see somebody that's able to talk a good game, but deep down when you get into the details of life, it just doesn't measure up and doesn't line up? And Paul says, if you got those sorts, they're not the right people to put in place. That's why when he talks about elders, he uses this word that, that kind of means two things at the same time. 
Number one, an elder, sorry if any elders have walked in the room since then, is supposed to be an old guy. I really let that linger for the guys that were in service last time. But here's why. It's not just because Paul was being ageist and favoring older folks. It was because Paul was favoring the wisdom that someone that's been in the faith for a long time has gained and has accrued over life. But it also contains this idea of oversight. And not this oversight where it's some big power-hungry person that's over and in dominion over the people, but oversight as in someone that's willing to get down in the grit and the mire of life with their people. It's discipleship. It's putting leaders in place that will love and shepherd the people. And here's the beauty of it. Even if not all of us are tabbed to be elders one day, all of us are called to be these Jesus shepherd-like people. Because ultimately, all of us are called to walk in step with the Spirit. Which means... We need people in our lives. We need leaders that will go ahead of us. Those would be the elder types. We need each other to be side by side, to spur one another on in faith. And we need someone willing to follow us, to walk behind, that we can bring along with us. Because as we are being led in faith, we can lead others in faith. See, the, the beauty of, of the Christian faith is there is no such thing as alone. In fact, in the very beginning, the real beginning, you know, <laughs> where God said it's not good for man to be alone, the Christian faith is all about not keeping us alone. God doesn't leave us alone to fix the problem. God doesn't leave us alone to walk the walk. And God doesn't leave us alone when it comes to trying to walk the walk in this world. It is not some mountaintop experience that we have on our own, but instead God gives us his spirit and he gives us each other to walk the walk together with him and with the people sitting next to you in this room. The fruit is the proof of the roots. Don't let that be something where you look at this high bar measure and you read these things and you say, I've not hit the mark. Don't let that be a discouragement. Recognize that what Paul calls you to, you are capable of getting to because, because God sent us help to strengthen us to do it so that we don't do it alone. I want to end on a thought. It's something that Dee Dee said a long time ago. I feel like we were in like a a meeting talking about a passage, and he was talking about the nature of God versus the nature of the demonic. And when you read the New Testament, what you see is that the, de the, the demonic, they possess people. They take control. They give no control to the person possessed. But God doesn't operate like evil. God does not possess. God indwells but calls us to walk in step. Which means that it really is a partnership of faith. Not because we have any strength to do it on our own, 
but because God provides us the opportunity to aim for that bar and gives us the support to do it. That's the kind of God he is. So I'd encourage you that when you come across a passage like this, to not be discouraged and to not think about how you don't measure up, but instead look inwardly and say, what is the fruit that is coming out of my life? And if you don't see it as Jesus-like, go to God and say, God, whatever is at my root needs to be uprooted and replaced with you so that I can start to bear good fruit and so that I can be a light to the world, the light that you have called me to be. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for this morning and I just thank you for the fact that I, th I thank you for the fact that you don't leave us alone to our own devices. And I know personally that uh, I, have, I have so many struggles that I, I can't muscle through on my own. And I have been the beneficiary of your faithfulness despite my lack of faith. And I've been the beneficiary of so many people in my life that have helped to encourage me in so many different ways. And I pray that, Lord, that you will uh, give that to the people in this room, that by your spirit we'll be able to walk, and by the encouragement of one another as a church body, that we will help encourage and inspire and push each other toward faithfulness in you, so that we really can be Jesus with skin on to the world around us. I thank you that you don't leave us alone but that you love us, that you desire a relationship with us, and that you give us everything we need to have a relationship with you and with one another. We thank you for that, and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.